0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca I'll direct your attention to God's Word, and I will read from Luke 2, chapter 22 through 35. This is part one of three for my Christmas sermon series this morning, this evening, and tomorrow. So... And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's have prayer together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the joy that we have in our hearts as we gather on this morning of Christmas Eve. And we are taking this time, as we've decided to, to reflect upon and meditate upon the birth of our Savior when truly God became truly man in this hypostatic union, whereby we have one person who is both truly God and truly man, born in the womb from the womb of the Virgin Mary. And we reflect on these very humble beginnings of the kingdom of our Christ, our true king who was born in this manger on Bethlehem and was born to parents who were peasants and poverty-stricken in a day of dark tyranny and corruption and moral decay. And yet, here we stand on this Lord's Day and his empire has reached even this far away. And so we seek to bring our King his worship this morning, and we desire that our hearts may be even more warm towards him, and that our affections would be even more directed towards our dear Savior. We pray for the strengthening and edification of your church, and we pray for the salvation of sinners. Grant that we would have great hope for having gathered and for having heard your word preached this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So like I said, this is part one of three sermons, and I'm going to spend uh, this morning in this text. And then if you come back this evening for our Christmas Eve service, I'll be in this text, God willing, this evening. And then if you come back tomorrow morning, For our Christmas Day service, I'll be in this text tomorrow morning. So my goal this morning, beyond pointing you to the loveliness of Jesus Christ, is to give you enough of a hook to get you back tonight and tomorrow. But we'll see if I'm effective in this great endeavor upon which I am embarking. But at this point in Luke... And by the way, it'll be a little shortened this morning, so the sermon will be a little shortened. It'll be between 30 and 40 minutes, and then it'll be a little shorter tonight and tomorrow too. But at this point in Luke, we have learned of, if we'd been reading the gospel according to Luke up until this point, we would have learned of the birth of Jesus Christ in the manger in Bethlehem. The angels have already visited the shepherds and I was reflecting with my family last evening, asking the kids what their favorite aspect of the Christmas story was, and we kind of went around the room and talked about it. And, and for me, as I have meditated and reflected upon the Christmas story this week, I think one of my favorite aspects is the fact that the proclamation of the kingdom of God and the advent of Jesus Christ was first announced, not to the high and mighty in the halls of power of politics and religion, but rather to lowly shepherds in a field who tended their flocks by night. God very often reveals his truth to the most unexpected people so that great movements of God have the most humble beginnings to show that he truly is Lord and God. And so the revelation of Christ has been made known as the shepherds danced across the night sky, or as the angels danced across the night sky to the shepherds. The shepherds were among the first visitors to our Lord and to the Virgin Mary and her betrothed Joseph, is the Lord Jesus had just been born in that humble manger in Bethlehem. And then we get to the point in the Gospel of Luke, immediately before this text that I read this morning, eight days after Christ's birth, he would have been, as Luke tells us, circumcised. According to the laws and the customs of the Old Testament. In this passage, Jesus, taken by Mary and Joseph, enters the temple of God. This is very important. For the very first time, the Messiah, Christ, who the Jews have been waiting for for millennia, now enters into his temple in the person of Jesus Christ. And the wild thing about Jesus entering his temple for the very first time ever, as the Jews have been pining away for him in darkness, is that nobody's waiting for him. Nobody cares. There's no pomp, there's no ceremony, there's no festivities, there's no celebration. But one man who I'll preach on this Christmas season, named Simeon. Simeon is standing in the temple, is the one remnant of true religion in the temple, waiting for the Son of God, the Messiah, to arrive. Simeon, in many ways, represents the longing of God's people. His life had been lived until this point, waiting for the arrival of Messiah. Because God gave him a promise and told him, he told Simeon, God did, that Simeon would not die until he had seen the Messiah. And so Simeon's life until this point has been lived daily. Waking up and going to bed thinking, is this the day? Is this the day? Is this the day? And finally the day came. When Simeon went to the temple, and Simeon encountered the living God and held him in his arms, he meets the Savior. And while Simeon represents the longing of God's people to meet the Savior, Simeon stands for and is embodying the joy that God's people have, or should have, in the arrival and advent of the Savior. He, he embodies the longing of God's people, and then he embodies that longing fulfilled, that longing fulfilled in the birth and advent of Christ. So outside of trying to give you a good hook this morning, what I'm also trying to do is I'm trying to foster within you a longing for Christ, and the joy The goodness and the relief that comes by having that longing fulfilled. That's my hope today. I want you to have a great appreciation deep down in your gut over just how much Simeon was longing for Christ, why he was longing for Christ, and how and why those longings were fulfilled so that you yourself will rejoice at the advent of Christ and will leave church this morning rejoicing that our Savior has been born, as Simeon did at that first Christmas. We have in this text, have divided it up in three ways, the setting, Jesus goes into the temple, the yearning, Simeon waits for Jesus, and then the fulfillment. Simeon meets Jesus. The setting, Jesus goes into the temple. The yearning, Simeon waits for Jesus, and the fulfillment, Simeon holds Jesus. Let's start first with the setting. Jesus goes into the temple. Jesus goes into the temple. Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple. We see that in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So they're going to Jerusalem to the temple. This would have been 40 days after his birth, because they were abiding by and obeying the customs and the laws that are presented to us in the book of Leviticus, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, whereby the mother of a son was to have a time of purification for 40 days after the birth of her son before she presents him to the temple. So Leviticus, chapter 12, verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, and at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin she'll be circumcised, then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. And so... When a mother gave birth to a son in Israel, it was the custom and the law that she would take 40 days of rest before she would return to the temple of the Lord and she would participate in public life again. Now having said that, I think we are no longer bound to obey those customary practices in the Old Testament because they have been fulfilled. However, I do think, as an aside, that there is great wisdom after a woman gives birth to a child for that woman to rest for several weeks and be relieved of any guilt for not attending church for three or four weeks, just to give her body a rest, if that. And so that was certainly the custom in the Old Testament. and. This is what Mary and Joseph were abiding by. And Mary and Joseph, having Mary, having rested now for 40 days after giving birth to the Son of God, goes to the temple of God and goes there, as was the custom, to bring an offering. And the offering, we are told in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 6... And when the days of her purifying are complete, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So this is what they're doing. They're bringing their offering to God. Mary had rested for the 40 days that had been allotted for her rest so she could recover from her birth and delivery. And now she is going back into the temple to make her offering. Verse 23 of Luke chapter 2 says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. They consecrated Jesus to God in this act of worship. They brought him into the temple to consecrate him to God because he was the firstborn son. That was the custom for every son, but for the firstborn son especially had to be set apart in the temple is an act of consecration, the one who opened the womb for the mother, the firstborn. And this was the custom of the Hebrews. And it was the custom of the Hebrews because God had killed and executed the firstborn son of every Egyptian. And at the time of the execution of the firstborn son of every Egyptian, that was when the Hebrews were let out of Egypt, And they saw that although the sons of the Egyptians were killed by God, the angel of death, the sons of the Hebrews had been preserved. And so as a memorial to that, the Hebrews would then take, every time they had a firstborn son, they would then take him to the temple to consecrate him to remember what God had done in delivering them from Egypt. And this is, again, in accordance with the Old Testament. So... Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, the exodus is taking place here. It says, "'Consecrate to me,' God says, "'all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb, among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast.'" Then Exodus 13, verse 14 through 15 says, "'Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem.'" And when your son, or when in time it comes to come, your son asks, why do we do this? Or what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And so this is, this was what the um, Old Testament told and what it said, and, and this is what they were doing. And so all of this is showing to us, as Mary and Joseph take Jesus into the temple after 40 days is it's showing to us how dedicated they were to the Lord. These were serious believers. They knew the law, they knew the customs, and they were greatly dedicated to the Lord. And they brought with them an offering. Luke 2 verse, 20, or 2 verse 24 says, And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. So this is their offering to God. They've taken Jesus, they brought him to the temple after 40 days of rest, and they're going to consecrate him because he's the firstborn son, and they have to offer an offering because he is a child that's born in Israel. And the offering that they bring is found in 2 verse 4, or 2 verse 24, which is a pair of turtle doves and two pigeons. And that tells us something very important. And what that tells us is that Mary and Joseph were very poor. They were peasants. They were not among the nobility and the upper class in Israel, they were among the lower classes. They were obscure people who would have not been recognized at all in society because they brought the offering that is associated with poverty. There were two types of offerings that someone would bring for their firstborn son, for their child as they entered the temple 40 days after the birth. One offering was for those who had kind of the standard income in Israel or higher. And the other offering was for those who were impoverished in Israel. So this isn't isn't the offering of the middle class. This isn't the offering of, of those who would live the standard lifestyle in ancient or in old Israel. This is the offering of those who were impoverished. And we know that from Leviticus 12, verse 8. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the, te- and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. And so this is what's going on. Poor Mary and Joseph, after 40 days, now have to make their way to the temple. And, and making their way to the temple, they are bringing their offering to God. And in bringing their offering to God, we are told that they were very poor people, these peasants who cared for our Lord. Now let's talk about the temple for a minute that Jesus is going into. I, I want to describe the temple so you can picture what these two impoverished peasants are dealing with. So I've, I've drawn a picture, I've, hopefully I've painted a picture of their poverty. They're among the lower classes within Israel, not the middle class, not the upper class, the lower class. And now they're going to the temple to bring their offering to God, as dedicated servants of the Lord. And the temple itself was a glorious structure. It was built during the time of Ezra and Herod the Great just a few years before, it had fallen into disrepair, and Herod the Great just a few years before the birth of our Lord started to repair the temple, about 16 years before Jesus was born. And Herod the Great wanted to do a really good job on the reparations of this temple, So he actually employed 18,000 men to rebuild it and repair what had fallen into disrepair. The temple that Mary and Joseph, impoverished as they were, were entering into in Jerusalem was the most visible part of Jerusalem. It's on top of Mount Moriah, which is at the center of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains. Then you have a valley where the people live. And then you have Mount Moriah in the middle of Jerusalem. And so it's... A majestic picture, if you can gather it in your mind, you have this temple on top of a mountain in the middle of the city, and the, mid- and the city itself is surrounded by mountains. So it's quite beautiful. It's picturesque. And the temple courts were atop six, 600-foot walls, so they find themselves above 600-foot walls. And then going above the temple courts, beyond that is are 75-foot walls. So this is a high, very high, very imposing structure in the city of Jerusalem. We think of our major city centers and we think of the various skyscrapers that dominate the skyline. Well, not so in Jerusalem, not so in the ancient world. In the ancient world, especially in Jerusalem, the temple would have been the centerpiece. You look at Jerusalem from yonder, from a distance, and what do you see? This glorious edifice that is shooting up into the sky atop Mount Moriah, atop a 600-foot wall with 70-foot walls protruding up above the temple courts. And they would have come up the east side of the temple, which was, had 75-foot-high gates of brass. And if they had done so in the morning, those 75-foot-high gates of brass faced east. And so the sun would have been coming up, peeking up over the mountain peaks, and reflecting off of those 75-foot-high brass doors. So you would have had a glowing temple that the Christ... Child was entering into. So, just I'm trying to paint this picture for you. Here you have these humble peasants who have traveled to Jerusalem with their little baby. They couldn't even find a place to have the baby in, they had to have the baby in a manger. The first visitors are lowly shepherds, and now they're climbing up this stairwell or the staircases rather of this glorious, imposing structure likely with the sun reflecting off of the brass doors made them look like gilded doors with the sun there it's an enchanted picture it's a majestic enchanted picture the heart of religious life the heart of the holy city and the heart of the holy land right the most holy place of the most holy city in the most holy land So it's the most important place and the most important city and the most important land. And here we have these little peasants going up the stairs with their baby. And Mary and Joseph, two peasants, two nobodies, climb up the stairs for their religious duties with baby Jesus, 40 days old, in their arms, with nobody to greet them. Although they be poor, although they be unimposing, they are carrying with them Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who the Jews have been pining away for for millennia, and nobody is there to greet them. There's, there's no pomp. There's no orchestra. There's no choir. There's no angelic chorus. There, there's no line up going up the stairs of a guard. They're Nothing. It's just them and their baby making its way, making their way up the stairs to do their religious duties. So that's the picture of you get, you get of Jesus entering the temple. This is the Messiah. The first time he's ever entered his temple as a man, as a child, and it's essentially falling on deaf ears. But then we're introduced to this other man in the picture who's kind of this obscure fellow in the Bible, and his name is Simeon. And we're introduced to Simeon, and so we get to point two. We have the yearning. Simeon waits for Jesus. Simeon waits for Jesus. No one came to greet Jesus, his family, except one man, Simeon. And no one came to meet this peasant savior except for one man, Simeon. And we know very little about him. Outside of these few little verses in the Bible, we know that he was from Jerusalem. We know that his name was Simeon. And we know that he was longing to meet Jesus, verse 25 says, of Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's all we really know about him. This short little biography for this little man that seems so insignificant. Spurgeon comments on the biography of Simeon that's given to us in verse 25, and he says, what a biography of a man, how short, and yet how complete. I mean, people write massive volumes on significant characters in history, And here we have this significant character who was the only man in the temple longing for Jesus Christ at the birth of Christ. In this glorious edifice, 18,000 men were employed simply to build it. Innumerable staff, innumerable priests, innumerable Levites, a religious hierarchy in there doing their religious duties and we have one man who we know almost nothing about, outside of his name, outside of where he was from, Jerusalem, and outside of the burden of his heart, and that is that he was longing for Jesus Christ. We're told in verse 25 that he was righteous and devout. Devoted to God and holy before God. Most important and unlike the religious leaders of his day, He was upright, righteous, and devout. In verse 25, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what's the consolation of Israel? What a title for Jesus. The consolation of Israel. Well, the consolation of Israel was needed because they needed to be consoled. You see, they were under Roman tyranny, so it was a day of political oppression. And oppression by a corrupt political establishment, the national leadership of Israel, so I'm not talking about the Roman leadership, as corrupt and as it was and as tyrannical as it was, the national leadership of Israel, of ethnic Israel, was religious, were political, but they were corrupt too, we're told. Jesus repeatedly called them hypocrites, and their corruption was one of the reasons that Israel was at this time under occupation. And then beyond that, what Israel would have been doing, the you know, average person on the street of Israel would have been doing, is they would have been remembering the glory days. Remember how glorious it was at the time of Solomon, when there was so much wealth and prosperity in Israel, you could kick a piece of silver down the street because their silver was so plenty. And the borders were safe. and. The streets were safe and secure and you could walk down the streets at night and not worry about being harassed and you could keep your doors unlocked and so on. Those were the glory days of Israel. Well, the glory days have long gone and Israel has fallen into great disrepair and great corruption and the people should have been, certainly Simeon was, waiting for consolation. When will God reverse the course of things? When will he arrive and show up? When will he undo all the sin and tyranny and corruption and decay that has occurred in Israel? And beyond that, when will he bring about the forgiveness for our own sins that we've longed for? And so you have Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel in this corrupt establishment. And I suspect that Simeon... Was in one sense, is Lot was in Sodom. What was Lot in Sodom? Well, he was one righteous man in the middle of a wicked city. And Second Peter chapter two, verse seven tells us that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. I suspect that's what Simeon was in Jerusalem. Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And I suspect that as I talk about Simeon and I talk about Lot and I describe the darkness of the times and I describe their likely and would-be reflection on the glory days of Israel, I suspect there are not a few of you here today who can relate. When will God undo all the evil that has occurred? When will he set things right? When will he lower those corrupt mountains and raise those valleys that are pining away for righteousness. When will this occur? And Simeon felt that way every day. Verse 26, we are told, that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You you can imagine this man, Spurgeon describes him this way. Every morning he went up to the temple saying to himself, perhaps he will come today. And each night he went home to bend his knee and said, Oh, Lord, come quickly, come even so quickly. And I want you to take heart about something. Because even in the darkest of times, and even in the most corrupt times, especially in the darkest of times in the most corrupt times, God always has his simians. He always has his remnant that are praying, that are longing, There are waiting, and quite often, he has more Simeons than you realize. And at his time, he will show who all the Simeons are. And so there was Simeon in this dark temple, corrupted by the religious establishment, in this dark city, corrupted by the political establishment, under this dark tyranny, corrupted by the Roman emperor, And there was little old Simeon pining away day after day after day after day. When will the Messiah come? When will the Messiah come? When will God's people be consoled? When will it happen? When will God visit us with forgiveness? When will we see the power of God? And then, having learned about Jesus going into the temple... And having learned about the yearning, the yearning of Simeon as he waits for Jesus, we have the fulfillment as Simeon holds Jesus in verse 27. And don't miss how special this is. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God. What a glorious picture this is. After all these years, he now holds the consolation of Israel in his arms. Can you imagine the warmth that Simeon felt as he held baby Jesus, the newborn Christ, and looked him in the eyes? Can you imagine the joy in his heart as he cradled the newborn savior, and pressed him up against his chest, and smelt his breath against his face. He'd been waiting, and waiting, and waiting. In here was the warm body of baby Jesus, cradled in the arms of Simeon, who'd been pining away under the dark tyranny and corruption, waiting for this day, And this is all he's known for in the Bible, is the man who waited for Jesus. That's it. He was the man who waited for Jesus. Matthew Henry says, he embraced him, Simeon did, with the greatest affection imaginable. Laid him in his bosom, as near his heart as he could, which was as full of joy as it could hold. While the world crumbled in seamlessly hopeless darkness, the dawn of its rescue cooed in Simeon's arms. What a beautiful picture this is. The dawn of the rescue of a dark world is now beaming off of Simeon's face as he looks down into the eyes of this 40 day old baby. And won't you be full of joy this Advent season? To know that this Advent has come, this Christ has arrived. Won't your heart rejoice with Simeon this Christmas? Why? Because as pining away as the world is in darkness, And under corruption and decay, Christ has come. He has been born. He has come in a humble way, but the king has arrived. And the dawn of our hope has cracked the eastern sky. And old Simeon held him in his arms. Won't you worship the Lord Jesus this Christmas? knowing that all the hope of the world rests upon this child. And won't your heart well up with gratitude, knowing that as was promised, God sent his son, and he sent his son to save us. Simeon speaks, and Simeon shares a few words, a few words of praise to God And a few words of admonition to the young teenage couple with the baby. But to hear those words, you'll have to come this evening and tomorrow. Let's have prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your kindness. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus. How the dawn of your salvation has arrived in this Christ child. And that all the hope of the world rests upon him and for him we are thankful. And to him our hearts well up with worship, and to him the affections of our hearts are directed. In Christ's name, amen.